I don't know about you, but I am personally a fan of clear and direct communication. Does anybody else like me, you just like it when people give it to you straight? Anybody else? That is how I am. I am not a big fan of when you need to try to read between the lines, try to figure out what somebody is saying, all of those things. However, I have been married for 17 years, and I pretty quickly realized that though I don't like it, it is an important skill for marital bliss. It really is. I have learned through the years that you need to read between the lines a little bit, and sometimes what your wife says is not really what she means. For example, your wife may say, I don't know what to make for dinner tonight. Men, the correct answer is not beef, it's not chicken, it's not any other meat. The correct answer is, why don't I go pick up some pizza or Chinese? <laughs> your wife may say, man, the house is looking a little bit messy today. Men, the correct answer is not, it sure is, but I'm sure you'll get it tidied up. The correct answer is, you don't say anything and you just start cleaning up. Very important stuff. You didn't know you were getting marital advice today. See, sometimes you just need to read between the lines, which is fine. You learn to do it. But I would much prefer things to just be laid out clear. I just prefer direct clear communication. And for that reason, I am really excited about what we are going to talk about today. Because today's foundational truth is one of those topics in the Bible that is just so absolutely clear. It's just laid out clearly verse after verse after verse. You don't have to try to deduce what it is all about. There's no reading between the lines. Rather, there is verse after verse that defines exactly what it's all about. And today we're talking about love. We're talking about love. So we are trucking along through our Foundational Truth series. As a reminder, if you weren't here, I felt the Lord put seven different topics on my heart that we were supposed to start with in this new, new season at Bethel to set a foundation for everything that God wants to do. Now, if you've missed any of them, you can check them out on YouTube, you can check them out on our podcast, and you can get all caught up. So, so far, we have looked at truth. We saw that Jesus is truth, and he is revealed in the Bible, which is the standard of truth. We have seen the power of the Holy Spirit, and we've learned that we have the Holy Spirit so that we can boldly proclaim the gospel, and we can operate in supernatural giftings. We've seen that the presence of the Holy Spirit and learning how to host his presence is vital in our lives in the church because his presence is the very source of that power. And last week... We looked at prayer, and we saw how prayer was a fundamental purpose of why we gather as a church, and that it's a powerful tool for seeing change because prayer serves as a bridge from what currently is to what should be. And today we're going to add another truth to this foundation as we study the topic of love. Now, this is a topic that tends to get a lot of pulpit time in churches, and yet for a really good reason. It's a vital truth that is foundational to everything we are as individuals and everything we are as a church. And because it is so vital, what we know is that the enemy works overtime and he works incredibly hard to distort and pervert it in so many ways. And so the plan for today is we are going to go right to a section of scripture that thoroughly and clearly defines love 
And we're going to spend a good amount of time just breaking it all down today. And what we will see is that the Bible is abundantly clear on what love is. And yet, while it is abundantly clear, what we will see is that it is also sort of crazy how much depth and meaning there is to a simple four-letter word. And so if you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and get them open to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We should have them up on the screen as well. 1 Corinthians 13, we'll read verses 1 through the first part of 8. It says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, the placement of these verses is pretty interesting. They are sandwiched right in the middle of Paul teaching on the Holy Spirit, supernatural giftings, and their operation in the church. And so in the middle of Paul talking about the amazing things that the Holy Spirit wants to do, supernatural miracles and healing, prophecies and words of knowledge and all of these other things, He takes what seems like is a detour, and he gives a very thorough overview on love. So in the context of those verses, Paul is saying that the supernatural giftings and the power of God should be desired and are necessary in the church. That's not the topic of today's sermon, but that's an important thing for us to grasp, is Paul essentially just assumes that these things are going to be happening in the church, that the gifts of the Spirit will be operating So should we. So Paul, in this context, just is talking about all of these incredible things, but then he says all of those giftings must be motivated from the correct place, and that place is love. The supernatural power of God operating in the church must be rooted in love. And so if you look at verses 1 to 3, it tells us that these amazing supernatural giftings will be ineffective if we don't have love. If they're not motivated by love, if love isn't the motivating factor in the use of supernatural gifts, we will be ineffective because supernatural gifts cannot fix the rift where love is lacking, right? Supernatural giftings of the spirit are not to make up for a lack of love and disorder and disunity in a church. So I pray that all of us would take this to heart today. Take this message to heart because as we move forward as a church, I'm believing that the supernatural giftings of God are going to operate in this church. And I don't believe it's going to be limited to just a few people. I believe God wants all of us to experience that power and be open to him working through our lives. However, the truths contained in this are not just for the context of the supernatural giftings. These verses apply beyond just that particular use case. 
These verses can be applied generally because in the same manner, everything that we do and every interaction we have with others, both other believers and those who have yet to accept Christ, is also to be motivated by love. And because this is such an important topic, the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to capture a number of different truths defining exactly what love is. And so what you'll notice right away, and you noticed it as we read those verses, is that the biblical definition of love given in verses 4 through 8 is very different than what the world says about it. The world emphasizes emotions and feelings when it comes to love. But the Bible says it is so much more than that. Love is not merely words or thoughts or an emotion. Rather, love is something tangible that can be demonstrated. It's not a theory. It's practical. It affects how we live. Love is shown in our actions towards others. Love looks like something. Love looks like something. And so we're going to break these verses down piece by piece. And as we look at what the Bible defines love as, I pray And I pray that our prayer would be that we would see these things in our lives and in this church. And so I have the NIV translation up there today. And in the NIV translation, you see 14 different descriptions of love. Now, we could easily take 14 weeks and study each and every one of these in detail. But I thought it would be more fun to preach 14 weeks of sermons in one week. All right, so we're going to go after this today. We are diving in, going deep. Now, you don't need to worry. We're not going to be here for like three hours, right? I don't believe in marathon sermons. So let me take a quick aside here. Somebody actually asked me, I've had a couple people ask me, how long do you think a preacher should preach for? And so I will try all times to shoot for 35 to 40 minutes. I know to some people that's sacrilegious because they're like, oh, you got to preach for an hour or an hour and 15 minutes. How many people have an attention span that can last that long? Not me. I might get lost up here if I try to preach for an hour and a half. So what I believe is that sermons should be like a can of condensed soup, right? You got a can of condensed soup. You got all the soup in there. You got all the goodness in there, but you don't have any of that extra water that's just watering it down. So I work very hard to take a sermon and get as much as I possibly can in that 35 to 40 minute range so that we can just get as much as we can out of it and go, all right? So what we're going to do today is we're going to take a quick look at each one of these descriptions of love to get the high level detail, and perhaps we'll have a series on this sometime in the future. And it starts off with a good one. Look at verse four, is it? Verse four, please, if we could. Yeah, there we go. It starts with a good one. Love is patient. So God shows right off the bat that he is not messing around. Now, is there anybody in this room today that feels like they are the perfect model of patience? Is there anyone here who feels like you have completely mastered patience? It is fine if you want to raise your hand right now and say yes But if that is the case, we want you to record yourself the next time you're driving somewhere and someone's going 10 below the speed limit and you're late for an appointment. (laughs) Or we want you to record yourself the next time you're at Walmart and there's 50 different lanes, but only two are open and there's 10 people late in each one. You can say yes, but you got to do that. Patience can be a tough one, but the Bible tells us that love is patient. Now, I said earlier that love looks like something. 
So as we go through these different pieces of these verses, we are going to identify what love looks like for each one of them. And in this case, love is patient means love looks like grace extended to others when they don't meet our expectations. Patience looks like grace extended to others when they don't meet our expectations. So grace is when somebody doesn't drive as fast as we think they should, but we extend that grace to them. It's when someone doesn't work as quickly or get something done as fast as we think they should, but we extend grace to them. It's when someone's life perhaps isn't changing as fast as we think they should, or they're not moving along as fast as we think, but we extend grace to them. Patience is a fruit of love because love allows us to value the person to whom we need to be patient with above our own self and our feelings and our desires and even our time. Patience means we value that person more than we value our time our feelings, our desires. See, when our kids are learning to read, none of us yell at them for not reading fast enough. At least I hope not, right? What happens is our love for them allows us to be patient with them as they're learning to do something we know that they can do. So what if we loved and valued others in the same sort of way? What if we valued others more than we valued our own time and our emotions and our desires, I expect that we would be able to show a little bit more grace and we'd be a little bit more patient with people. We could show them a little bit more grace. Love is kind. Love is kind. So love looks like kindness. There's a saying out there, you've probably seen it, in a world where you can be anything, be kind. What does it actually mean to be kind, though? Well, the word that's used here has the sense of benevolence to it. In other words, it's kindness that shows itself in our actions towards others. It has a sense to it of being generous. I believe that God is calling the church to kindness, but not the world's kindness that is really just surface deep. Right? The world often equates kindness with flattery. It's just words that flatter people. But what God is actually calling us to is generosity to the world with what he has given to us. And so while material resources can be part of that, it's more than just that. It could also be our time that we give to others. It could be our attention. It could be helping them out. It could be generous with the words that we speak over them that bring life and not death. Generosity is an attitude of the heart, and a generous heart can be a kind one. See, if God's people simply walked out being kind to others in the midst of a world that can be so cruel... I guarantee it would get people thinking, what is so different about them? Love does not envy. Love does not envy. That means that love looks like the celebration of others. Love looks like the celebration of others. Love celebrates the successes and the blessings that other people receive. So we know that envy is related to jealousy. See, when someone else gets blessed or something good happens in their lives, do we celebrate with them or do we question their blessing? If someone else gets blessed, they get a promotion, they get a new job, they get a new car, a new home, God does something in their lives, do we celebrate with them or do we grumble and start saying, well, why did they get that blessing from God? What did they do that's so great? What are they doing that I'm not doing? Love allows us to rejoice with those who rejoice, 
even as the Bible tells us to do. Love means we celebrate the talents, the gifts, and even the blessings that other people receive because love looks like the celebration of others. Love does not boast, and love is not proud. I told you we were breaking this down today. We're going deep. So if love does not boast and love is not proud, that means that love looks like humility. Love looks like humility. So the Bible has a lot to say about humility and, of course, its opposite, which is pride. And humility is the willingness to recognize and value someone else over yourself. And so Philippians 2.3 tells us to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Now, this is simply following the model that Christ set. Because in Philippians 2.8, it says, In being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so Christ valued our lives above his own, and he gave his life on the cross for us, and we are called to value others above ourselves in the same manner. Humility also means that when we are blessed, we don't boast about it, but rather we see in that blessing the goodness of God and the opportunity to bless others. So I believe that God desires to bless his people, and I'm not just talking about money. God desires to bless his people. The problem with the prosperity gospel is that it distorts the truth around prosperity because the truth is that God wants his people to prosper. He wants us to be a prosperous people, but that prosperity can be in things much more valuable than just money. And where the prosperity gospel gets it wrong is that they have the truth that God wants us to prosper, but they boil it all down to one thing and they make it about money. But the truth is, God does indeed desire his people to be blessed and prosper. That could be in our marriage, in our relationships, in our career, in our calling in him. God desires to bless his people. But in the blessing on our lives, we are to walk humbly as we recognize that every good thing comes to us from God. And in that place of humility, others can see the goodness of God in our lives. And we can recognize that we are blessed to be a blessing to others. Love does not dishonor others. That means that love looks like honor. Love looks like honor. Love honors other people. We must have a culture of honor in this church. We are not in competition with one another. We are brothers and sisters who should be cheering each other on. There is not a competition that takes place in the church for God's blessing. He's got enough for everybody. We are called to honor one another. Romans 13, 7 tells us to give honor to whom honor is due. See, honor empowers other people to be everything that Christ created them to be. That is why honor is such an important concept, because honor empowers people. And a culture of honor in a church, what ends up happening is we are all lifting each other up. And a culture where we are lifting each other up rises up to become everything that Christ called us to be. There's churches where the culture is not one of honor, and people are fighting with each other, they're gossiping, gossiping about each other, and they're pushing each other down. How is a church to rise up to be what God calls it to be when people are pushing each other down? But when we honor each other, we're lifting each other up, and as we lift each other up, the church as a whole rises up into the plans and the purposes that God has for us. 
When we lift each other up, we can walk as individuals in the plans God has for us, and the church as a whole can walk in the plans that he has for us. We are also called to honor those who are outside of Christ. So love recognizes that everyone has worth and is to be valued and respected in a manner who Christ created them to be. So we can show honor to people we don't agree with. I'm just going to sit on that one for a second. We're just going to sit on that one for a second. We can show honor to people that we don't agree with. We can show honor to people who don't deserve it, not because they're honorable, but because we are. And so we can show honor to people that we don't agree with because we recognize that their life is valued by Christ and he has a plan and purpose for their lives. See, we are called to love our enemies, like love them for real. All of this stuff, like grasp that today, all of these descriptors of what we're talking about is how we are supposed to be towards the people that come directly against us. We're called to love our enemies. I'm not saying that's easy, but I am saying it's necessary if we want to be the church that Christ has called us to be. So we must be a prophetic people who can see past the surface of people's lives. And we can see past all of the junk in their lives, all the things that they are caught up in. We see past that and we see in them who Christ created them to be. And we value them and we honor them and we pray for them and we call them forth into it. Even if they don't see it in themselves. So love honors others even when they dishonor us. Love is not self-seeking. So love looks like selflessness. Love is selfless with no selfishness. 1 John 4.10, it says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Love is selfless, and it need not be reciprocal. We don't give love in order to receive. We simply give. See, the world often gives love in order to receive something back. They'll be like, well, I love you. Do you love me? I love you. Do you love me? The world and people in this world so often give what they call love, not because they're giving love, but because they have a need inside of themselves that they're trying to have fulfilled. They have a need, and they're trying to get it fulfilled through someone else. They give love because they have a need to be loved. But love is selfless, meaning without focus on self. In other words, love is always given for the benefit of the one who is receiving the love, not for the one who is giving it. Now, this is really important for us as, as a church. And as we desire to reach our community and those who need to know Jesus, I can tell you there will be people who will never love us back. That's just reality. There will be people who will come against what the Lord is trying to do in this church and through this church, in this community. And if we have an attitude and a twisted definition of love, it could become easy to say, well, if you don't want our love, we'll just take it elsewhere. Or it could become really easy in that environment to say, well, then why are we even bothering out there? We'll just come in here and we'll just love on each other. But love need not be reciprocal. Love is selfless. And when we learn that, we can continue to give love to others, even if we've not received it from the ones that we're giving it to. So love is not easily angered. Love looks like grace extended to others. 
And I believe the Holy Spirit placed this one directly after not self-seeking for a purpose. Because anger at its core flows from self. Anger comes when someone comes against me, insults me, is an affront to me, blocks me from what I want to do. Notice the problem there. It's me, 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 me. Anger flows from a focus on self. But we are those who have crucified ourselves with Christ. We are dead to sin. And dead men men and women don't need to retaliate from a place of anger. 1 Peter 2.23, it says, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus could have wiped them all out with a word. He knew that. He said, I could call down a legion of angels. He could have wiped them out with a word. If he would have come from a place of anger, he could have done that. But he didn't. He trusted God who judges justly. So once again, I'm not saying this is an easy thing, but instead of showing anger, we should believe that God can make us a people who show grace instead. And we entrust our lives to him. Love keeps no record of wrongs. See, love looks like forgiveness. Love looks like forgiveness. It is incredible how much the Bible speaks on forgiveness. Last week, in the context of the Lord's Prayer, we talked about forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. See, love keeps no record of wrongs because we forgive as God forgave us, and he has promised not to keep a record of our wrongs. When we forgive, we wipe the slate clean, and the wrongs of the past are never used as ammunition against that person in the present or the future. It's completely gone, completely gone. Forgiveness is important because we are called to Christ-likeness. We're supposed to be like Christ, and we can't be like Christ if we are unwilling to forgive because he is a God who forgives. He is a God who forgives. Now, this is very important. Forgiveness is different than trust. Okay, forgiveness is different than trust. Forgiveness is given in an instant, but trust is built over time. So just because you forgive someone doesn't mean that you instantly trust them. Don't get that twisted, right? But forgiveness is the first step, and it's the beginning blocks to build trust once again. Love does not rejoice, does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love looks like truth. Love looks like truth. Some translations say, does not rejoice in unrighteousness. So notice the contrast here between truth and evil, truth and unrighteousness. Know that true love will always lead away from evil. So compromising biblical truth under the guise of love must be soundly rejected because love rejoices in truth. Love rejoices when truth and an encounter with Jesus, truth himself, leads us away from evil. So there's a lie in our society right now that tells us that love means we must put the stamp of approval on the people's bad choices in their sin. But you are not loving someone when you compromise on the truth that could set them free Rather, you're leaving them in chains of bondage and darkness. So we will never compromise on the truth because love leads away from sin. Love leads us into truth. See, the person who loves you the most isn't the one who tells you what you want to hear, but
but it's the one who tells you truth. That's what you need to hear. It's what we need to hear. So you're not loving someone when you just compromise on those things and you say, it's just okay, and you just be whoever you are, and you live your best life. You're not loving them in that instance because you're leaving them into bondage of sin. So we must love people for who they are, not what they do, and we must stand on truth and always remember that we speak that truth in love. Verse 7 now, it says it always protects. So love looks like a covering, a covering. So the word used here means providing a cover to keep water out. It is providing a covering in order to protect. So love will always protect. We protect that which is valuable. And what is most valuable? People. People are what is most valuable. So are we actively working to protect people because love protects? Are we protecting our connection with them? Are we protecting them from gossip if someone tries to speak badly about them? Are we protecting them by praying over them and being there for them when they're going through a tough time. Love calls us to protect others. Love always trusts. Love looks like the foundation of trust. See, the foundation of trust is love because you can only truly trust someone when you know that they put you before themselves. How do you know you can fully trust someone when they put you before themselves? We can trust Jesus fully because he put us before himself. What could a marriage look like if love led to full trust where both husband and wife are putting the others before themselves? I believe that's exactly what the Bible means when it says in Ephesians 5.21 to submit to one another. It means I put you before me and you put me before you. What could it look like? See, submission like this can only take place when there's full trust. The husband and wife can build trust when you know your spouse has your best intentions in mind. Now I ask, what could a church look like if love would lead us to be able to fully trust one another? Where we know that each of us puts the other first and that we can totally fully trust them. Trust builds strong relationships, and strong relationships form the foundation for a strong church that's ready to make an impact in our community. Man, what if we could just fully, totally, 100% trust each other? Well, we can because love is the foundation of trust. So love always hopes. Love looks like belief in God's promises. Once again, this is another area where the biblical definition of something is so different than the world's, right? Biblical hope is not the same as the world's idea of hope, which is more like a wish, right? To the world, hope is really just a wish. It's I hope I win the lottery. I hope I get a good parking spot at the mall. I hope the Cowboys win the Super Bowl this year. I got one back here. Anybody else? All right. Yeah, I got Forrest too. I got Forrest and Josh with me. That's, I didn't think that one would go over well. Sorry, guys. It was far worse when I was in Allentown because we were like an hour from Philly and an hour and a half from New York. So I would make a comment like that and I'd have rabid giant and Eagles fans ready to tar and feather me. (laughs) But hope in the Bible is different than hope to the world. See, biblical hope would better be defined 
as a steadfast belief in anticipation of receiving the promises of God. God has made promises and I can trust him and I can believe he will work them out in my life. Therefore, if love always hopes, it means when I walk in love, I can believe that God will fulfill his promises in my life and in the lives of others. And I serve to remind others of this hope, even if they don't see it. In other words, love always hopes means our love for other people reminds them of the hope that they have in Christ. And we come alongside of them and remind them time and time again that there are promises that God has for them and he will fulfill them in their lives. We are the ones to bring hope to a hopeless world. We are the ones called to bring hope to the hopeless. If we don't do it, who will? Who will? Love always perseveres. So love looks like permanence. Love looks like permanence. See, love can always persevere because love is a choice and not an emotion. See, love is often tied to feelings and emotions. Love has been watered down to the point where if we were to ask 100 people out on the street what love is to them, most of them, if not all of them, would struggle to give a definition that wasn't tied to an emotion or a feeling. Because the world has made love just about emotions and feelings. Now, I'm not saying emotions are bad. God created emotions. But we know that emotions change sometimes quite rapidly. Anybody know anybody like that? Husbands, don't look at your wives right now. I saw some of you looking. But if our love is tied to emotions, what you'll find is that love that you have for somebody will just kind of wane and wax and go up and down and it'll be all over the place. It simply will not last. See, people use terms like, we just fell in love. We just fell in love. Well, I don't know about you, but the last few times I have fallen, it wasn't intentional and it certainly wasn't a good thing. (laughs) Think about this. We use terms like, hey, I fell down the steps. I fell off the ladder. I fell off the stage. I fell off the porch. That's all bad, but somehow falling in love is good. Think about it. Think about it. See, the world puts love out as some uncontrollable emotion. And you've seen many people who have thrown away marriages and families and their careers and their calling in Christ over something they call love, but doesn't actually meet any of the definition of what love actually is. Because love is so much more than an emotion and a feeling. It is a decision we make, not once, not twice, but thousands upon thousands of times in our lives. We must choose love because love always perseveres because love looks like permanence. And if the worship team wants to go ahead and come on up. And then verse eight, love never fails. Oh, I love that. So love looks like success in the eyes of God. Love looks like success in the eyes of God. See, how many people in here would like to say, I just don't ever want to fail. I don't want my life to fail. I want my life to be a success. Well, when we operate in true love, as defined in these verses, we are told that we will not fail. You say, well, how can that be? Well, in the book of 1 John, it declares multiple times that God is love. So love is not merely an attribute of God. It's not something that he does. 
It's within the very essence of his being. It's within his very nature. It's who he is. And since that is true, the fact of the matter is, we may never be more like Christ than when we simply love. We may never be more like our amazing Savior than when we are willing to simply love people in action and deed, when we are willing to lay down our lives for them, when we simply love them with no strings attached and no expectation of receiving anything back from them. See, God is love. Jesus is love personified. And if we have the Holy Spirit in us, then we should be walking demonstrations of what that love is to our world. We are called to love. And these verses clearly define what that means and what that looks like. Now, here's the thing. Listening to this, as you read these verses, it can be a little bit intimidating because it's like, wow, is this really what God expects of me? Well, I have good news for you today. The answer is yes, absolutely. You say, wait a minute, I thought you said we have good news. Well, the good news is this. This isn't something that we claw and scratch and try to obtain and change ourselves to be. Love is a fruit of the Spirit, meaning God is the one who will do the work inside of us if we will allow Him. If we will allow Him, He will form these things in our lives. God doesn't demand anything of our lives that he is not willing to do in us if we will allow him to work. That should be really exciting this morning because it means we can see everything we talked about today in our lives and through our lives. This is a foundational truth for us as individuals and as a church because we want Bethel to be known as a church that loves unconditionally. It doesn't mean people will always love us back and we don't need them to. It doesn't mean we will agree with everything that people do or agree with anything that compromises biblical truth. But we must love people where they are at, not just in our words, but in a demonstration of everything that we study today. Love is important. I want you to know this morning that you are loved. You are loved. There is a God who loves you and has paid a high price for you to know and experience that love, and that love will change you. See, I can tell you one of the most important encounters of my entire life took place at a conference held here at Bethel. Sarah and I were the youth pastors in Allentown at the time, but we brought our youth group here. And there was one evening where Dan Moeller was here, and he was speaking on God's love. Now, I was saved, I was spirit-filled, I was leading a youth group, I knew that God loved me, and yet at the altar that evening, I encountered the love of the Father in a way that I can only describe of what Paul says in Ephesians, where he says, it's greater than anything you can know, you just have to experience it. And in that time, God marked me for life. And I remember leaving the room that day, and everything felt different. And there was this love and burning passion inside of me for God and for other people like I had never experienced before. But it didn't just stop there. See, I make it a habit of consistently praying, God, help me to love others the way that you love them. And I promise you that is a prayer that he will answer 100% of the time. God, help me to love others the way that you love them. This shouldn't just be a one-time encounter. 
God wants us to experience that love that changes us time and time and time again. Jesus' love is far greater and more radical than we could ever imagine. And if we encounter that love, we may just become a little bit radical ourselves. And we may just be willing to pay any cost to bring that love to others in our world. Because that's one more aspect of love we must recognize, is that sometimes love is costly. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So love could have a cost associated with it. God paid that price so that we could receive it and we could walk in it. And so we must receive that love in our lives so that we can see all that we discussed today. And even if it doesn't seem like it's happening all at once, God wants to build these things and grow these things through your life more and more and more as you allow him to work in your life. And let's just allow him to work in this church. Love looks like something. It's not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It looks like something. So let's be changed by God's love. Let's press in to receive it so that we can turn around and give it to others. First John says that it wasn't that we loved God, but he loved us and gave us his son. We can love because we have been loved. And the more love that we receive from him, the greater the revelation of it in our lives, the greater we will be able to love others as well. See, I believe God wants to shower that love on this place today. I believe God wants all of us to encounter that love that changes us. I believe you could leave here today seeing more of these things in your life, even as we discussed. So if you want to go ahead and stand to your feet today. Everything we just did has led to this moment. Because this is when we respond to what Christ wants to do. Some of you, you've been serving the Lord for a long time. You're like, yeah, I know the Lord loves me. There's so much more. He's got a fresh encounter of his love today that he just wants to pour out and shower over you. So the altar call today is I want to invite everybody to come up today. Because we all need more of God's love. I just want to invite us all to come up today because I believe that God wants us to encounter his love in a special way this morning, in a way that's going to change us. I believe that God just wants to baptize us in his love this morning. You say, well, what does that mean? It means he wants to immerse us. He wants to submerge us. He wants to drench us in his love that's poured out. And so I'm just inviting everybody to come this morning, spend some time pressing into God, ask him to just reveal his love more in your life, ask him to just pour out that love on your life so that we can be changed, because as he changes us, we can go forth to change this world. And so these altars are open, we're going to spend some time just worshiping this morning, but I just want to invite you all to come. Thank you for listening. You can find us online at BethelAG.com or on Facebook at Bethel Assembly of God, Littlestown, Pennsylvania. Our services are also live streamed every Sunday on our YouTube channel, Bethel AG, Littlestown, Pennsylvania.